It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling is the voice of mountain and forest wildlife and is hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Be ready for an increase in altitude and a relentless pursuit of the creatures that dwell there. Welcome to The Higher Calling. This is Chester Moore. You know, besides just mountain and forest wildlife, we make the bulk of what we do here up on this podcast. We love to talk about stream fishing and, and river fishing in the, in the rivers of the West, and also some of the streams here in the central United States, and just anything with fun fishing where families can get engaged and the average guy can access it and also things that have these very special challenges like the utah cutthroat slam we talked about a few weeks ago makes great topics for what we're doing here and it ties into the conservation because native waters streams have many conservation challenges that sort of fly under the radar of a lot of the other wildlife challenges not only what you hear about like in the corporate wildlife media but also in the hook and bullet media which i do the bulk of my work in and today we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Chris Johnson from Living Waters Fly Fishing in Round Rock, Texas. How are you doing, Chris? Doing quite well. Thanks for the invite to be on. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. We got connected by Therese Thompson from the uh, Western Native Trout Initiative and uh, with a common interest in uh, native um, trout species in America. And we really first got connected because of a common interest, which you're way further along into me, with the Rio Grande cutthroat. Absolutely. That's uh, one of the fish I enjoy chasing the most on the fly. Well, let's start there real quick because what got me going on this, I was talking to her on the phone about this Western Native Trout Initiative, and I said, Man, I sure wish we had a native trout here in Texas. She goes, Well, you did and talked about the Rio Grande cutthroat, and it rang a bell to something I very early in my career had read about but never studied up, that there was this native trout that's still native to New Mexico and Colorado that was probably 99.9% out there in the Trans-Pagos as a native fish. And um, we talked the other day, and you said that you even went out to some of these locations. So can you tell us some about the Rio Grande cutthroat? Certainly, as it pertains to Texas, um the species, you know, there's some bit debate on whether or not it was here or not. I personally believe that it was. Yeah. Um, and I just think there's a lot of evidence uh, planting in that direction. Uh, I know the Texas Parks and Wildlife, you can actually dig a little bit on their website. And I think they still have the uh, publication um, written by Gary Garrett and Gary Matlock. Yeah, 1991. Yeah, it makes the argument for native trout in Texas. And some of the evidence is uh, it's pretty strong, uh, including they found uh, – you know, trout scales and fossilized uh, Native American droppings and things like that. There were also some reports of uh, kind of Civil War era reports of guys doing wildlife surveys, uh, the Everman uh, report that went through there. Um, they, it, it's interesting because the cover plates that were used in that study were actually from uh, parts of Colorado that fish. So apparently, you know, it's one of those things that the debate is, well, did they know what they were looking at? And in this study, the color plates were actually from the uh, southern portion of Colorado where I go fish quite a bit. So... The thought is that they knew what they were looking at, and uh, that, that even uh, you know, even though they're not here now, that at one time uh, we probably had a native salmonid in the state of Texas. So that's pretty pretty incredible to think about. Yeah, I grew up thinking that the native trout of Texas was Cinnocyne nebulosus, the spotted sea trout, the speckled trout, the sand trout, the gulf trout. Of course, they're not true trout in the salmonoid kind of way that we talked about. But uh, it's exciting to think that in the 
fairly recent past we had these native trout here, but doing the digging that I did for an article I wrote at HigherCalling.net, um, learned that there was some water issues that caused and some development issues and things that caused these fish to no longer live here. So there's a myriad of things that uh, can, can kind of tribute, uh, contribute to that. The, the part I think that the water issue being the fact that, you know, things change. I mean, if you look, I mean, if you go out to Dripping Springs right now, you can go find my great grandparents at a place out there and you could find clam fossils and things like that yep. all, all throughout those fields. And it was crazy. So, I mean, you can find, you know, oceanic fossils all throughout Central Texas. Sure. You know that obviously climate change, environment change. I mean, we have woolly mammoth fossils right up the road in Waco and all, all around. So, I mean, there, there was once an entirely different climate. And I think what wound up happening is at this point, uh, you know, a lot of the places like the Devil's River where they found some evidence, of like a Baker Cave area, um, you know, Olympia Creek is another one over the Davis Mountains that they highly suspect had them in more recent past. Uh, and then, of course, McKittrick Creek in the Guadalupe Mountain National Park area, that still has uh, a wild reproducing population of rainbow trout that were introduced probably about 100 years ago, uh, but have managed to persist. So the water technically still can support trout. They're just not our native fish that were here at one time. So at this point, water, I think, is you know kind of receded. Habitat is extraordinarily limited. Uh, to say that we don't have any is probably a falsehood in the fact that we still have a wild population of rainbows in Guadalupe Mountain National Park, but by and large, we don't really have the habitat we want for this fish. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the things. I think in terms of uh, wildlife, people understand habitat more than aquatic habitat. You know, I think that sometimes there's a disconnect when people see water they think well this fish must still be able to flourish here not necessarily because you can even have the water in some occasions but maybe with certain trout you don't have the right amount of flow you don't have the right habitat the right the right vegetation growing so there's a lot of factors that go in aquatic habitat there are and uh, and with this with this species specifically it has to kind of have a ripple run pool environment where there is a little bit of uh you know, spawning opportunities and good substrate for that. It also has to have, you know, nice, cool, clean water um, that does stay cold on a year-round basis, which is something that we have a lot of springs in Texas, but as far as the, as far as that actual trout cold water, uh, that's pretty, pretty hard to, pretty hard to come by in Texas at, at large. So it's one of the things that uh, I think has really limited the uh, opportunities for this species within the state, but I think the only viable uh, water we currently have, and there was a, uh, a grassroots reintroduction effort that was uh, actually put forth by Texas Parks and Wildlife and uh, Guadalupe for Trout Unlimited to see and explore the option of reintroducing the Rio Grande cutthroat back to Texas in McKittrick Creek at one point. So. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the, the trout thing is fascinating in Texas because, you know, uh, I remember the very first, um, you know, stockings going into the, the Guadalupe River and, and then when kind of the Canyon Lake tail race thing started kicking off. And I remember thinking, man, that's just really, really incredible because here I am thinking I'm going to have to go to, you know, Montana or somewhere or even up in Arkansas to catch me a, a nice rainbow trout. And then we have this pretty incredible fishery and a gigantic trout unlimited movement based around the, the Guadalupe River. Absolutely. It, uh, it was, it's actually still currently the largest chapter of Trout Unlimited in the world. It's mind-boggling, man. Served on the board. Yeah, I served on the board of that chapter for several years and uh, still very involved with the chapter. Uh, and we're very involved with Trout Unlimited uh, as a national organization, as a business. We're actually a Trout Unlimited gold level business here at Living Waters. So doing, doing conservation efforts, of course, very near and dear to our hearts. 
Um, but the tailwater fishery below Canyon Lake is absolutely incredible. We guide it through the store. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize this, but not all those trout die in the summer. A lot mm-hmm. of those actually can over summer if the water conditions are favorable, yep. uh, which some years they very much are. And we do have some wild, uh, wild fish in the river that were actually spawned in the Guadalupe River itself. And so you have, uh, you know, these first generation wild fish that are showing up on the scene. And it's incredible to see. It's something you never in your wildest dreams think you'd find in Central Texas. Well, speaking of that, you know, how people say Guadalupe tail, you know, the Canyon Lake tail race and all this stuff. How big of an area is this that you say is an effective trout fishery? I mean, that can that can possibly sustain them through, like, say, a regular normal summer period? Uh, I mean, a lot of it does depend on their flow and just kind of the year we're having. But I would say on a, let's just say on average year-in, year-out basis, effectively the first four to five miles really sustains the fish from in the form of like a temperature refuge where that daytime water temp does not eclipse 70 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things that do make it, I mean, as with any, any fishery, there are a few wild cards. And within the Guadalupe River, the type of fish that are actually stocked by Guadalupe River Trout Unlimited, those come out of uh, Crystal, uh, I think it's Crystal Lake Fisheries out in Avon, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the Emerson strain of rainbow trout, which was bred to be temperature tolerant. And in talks with the hatchery out there, um, they've done some temperature trials on those fish where select specimens have actually weathered daytime water temps in the 80s. Wow. Which is unbelievable. That, that's unheard of at the trout world. So yeah. that's not every fish they stock, but a few of them will make it. So the, I've heard it said that there will always be trout in the Guadalupe tail race, um, no matter if there's flood or drought or whatever. And so far, that has proved to be true, even after the major floods where that water's coming out of the dam at well over 70, or excuse me, 70 uh, degrees Fahrenheit there's still trout in the tail race. It's just absolutely incredible. No, nah, that's a great story, and it's something that uh, has brought anglers together. And uh, I don't know of a type of fish on the globe that spawns the kind of ferocious conservation ethic of trout, you know, um, even down to, like, how, how you handle the fish, you know. There's a lot of things out there. Uh, maybe people who grew up fishing on the coast have a completely different mindset maybe than the guys out there. I was in Montana last September watching people fish in a stream, and it was almost a scientific effort, you know? And so it's really exciting to me in my home state to have this this great fishery and people that maybe they can't travel out west or to be able to go do something like this. I've been fortunate. I've caught like a 13-pound brown trout in, in New York, and, you know, I've caught pretty nice rainbows up in Little Red River in Arkansas and all those kind of things. But a lot of people, man, if they can just go out there and catch a fish so they can they can book trips with you, uh, yeah, we do run those through the store. Uh, obviously, during the uh, for the Guadalupe River specifically for trout, we run those in kind of the winter months, kind of the November through yep. you know March April timeframe, kind of our peak season. But yeah, we we stay pretty booked up. It's a it's a busy season. Well, make sure and hook these uh, up with these guys because um, it's a great opportunity and go learn that water and uh, learn from the experts and greatly enhance your opportunity catching some of these tremendous fish now uh when, when people want to go trout fishing maybe they're gonna do like we talked about a few weeks go take up the utah native trout slam or go out and try to get them a you know a rio grande cutthroat or yellowstone cutthroat or something like that uh in terms of conservation ethic i mean like a guy wants a great picture of a fish what are some of the handling tips you can give us for making sure that the fish released actually live so obviously, uh, as with any catch and release, I don't think anything's ever 100% successful, but there's some things that can be, you know, huge contributing factors for the survival of the fish and uh, really, really help with the mortality rate. So 
uh, first off, you know, when you catch a fish, play it as quickly as possible. You know, I know a lot of people love to feel a fish bite, and it's a lot of fun to watch them, you know, swim back and forth and do all that. But for the safety of the fish, we recommend once you hook it, yep. you know, put the wood to him, try to get him in the net as quickly as possible. And that's the other thing is use a net. There's a lot of uh, a lot of great products out there. We don't really recommend the ones that are kind of like the nylon netting that has all the knots and stuff in it. You'll typically see those down on the coast quite a bit. Yep. We use, uh, you know, clear rubberized net or stuff that's kind of like a rubberized coating on it to where uh, it actually does not remove the slime off the fish. Uh, we just want to do as much as we can to kind of keep that fish in as good a shape as it can be. Uh, and then when we, if we have to hold the fish or touch the fish, which, I mean, a lot of people want to do that for pictures. I'm no different. I like sure. to take pictures of the fish. But we keep those in the water as much as possible. We'll try to keep the fish with its belly touching the water, keep our hands totally wet. Uh, kind of the, the little motto is keep them wet. And there's a whole movement that's actually centered around that. Uh, and then trout are, you know, they're, it's amazing how resilient they are on the actual, like, habitat front in some of the places that they live. But they're actually pretty sensitive when, when interacting with anglers. And, uh, you know, a trout, if you keep it out of the water for 10 to 12 seconds, and that's any species of trout, you can do permanent damage to their gills. And that's why we really tell folks, this isn't a catfish that you can, you know, leave it on the bank, flopping around, doing all this stuff, and then try to let it go, and it's still okay. This is something that, you know, some care does need to be taken for the fish, and especially with species like Rio Grande Cutthroat, where they're technically listed, listed as a threatened species. They're not endangered, and we're fighting tooth and nail to keep them off that list. Um, but they, they are threatened, so therefore they do deserve our respect and care. What happened threatened to endangered uh, in, in terms of fishing? So that, that's an incredibly uh, great question, and it has kind of a long answer, but I'll mm -hmm. keep it as short as I can. You know, a threatened species still, it still allows a lot of your state entities and, you know, forest entities, Tribal, uh, tribal agencies and entities, and also, you know, anglers and conservation chapters, things like that, to to be a part of the story of this fish. To actually, yeah. the conservation is something that you know yourself and myself that we can we can involve ourselves in, yep. and you know, actually be boots on the ground for some of this stuff. You know, I've been up there and you know planted willows and sedges alongside creeks, and you know, we've done you know a lot for education and you know photographing this fish and you know making films about it, raising money. And, doing all sorts of stuff. It allows us to be part of that story. Um, when it goes endangered, it really kind of ties your hands on some of the fishing aspects of mm -hmm. us being actually able to enjoy the fish, but it also can tie your hands uh, on a federal level as well, making funding kind of hard to get sometimes, uh, and even just the, the state involvement and some of the management that can be, uh, you know, that takes place there, it just gets a little bit tougher. So if we can keep that off the list, then that's something that we've still got a you know, a threatened fish that only occupies approximately, you know, somewhere between, it's about 11 to 12% of its native range, somewhere in there. Sure. So it's minuscule compared to what it used to be, um, but it's still doing well. We do have a lot of populations that are persisting. Uh, as of 2016, I believe it was, um, the range was at 11%, and there were 129 populations uh, that were in existence that were like conservation populations. Well, that's great. You know, and basically, you have a fish here that's unfortunately been extirpated from 89% of its range, it seems like. But in some of the areas where it still exists, you're, it sounds like you're having some thriving populations and things like that. It's like I do a lot with wild sheep, and there are some areas with thriving wild sheep, but then you have entire hundreds of miles of habitat that are barren, you know. It's a very similar thing in, in, in terms of what's going on in the land versus what's going on down in the water. And uh, you mentioned something earlier to me that was interesting. You mentioned a strain of rainbow trout that was specifically 
uh, brought from a hatchery into in in Missouri, I believe, into Texas. Uh, is that a created strain in hatcheries, or is that a subspecies? So oddly enough, uh, without going too much into trout taxonomy and biology, which mm-hmm. uh, I don't have a degree in this, I'm just an absolute nerd. Me so too. I'll, I'll I'm the same way. That's why I ask these questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, I apologize if it starts getting a little nerdy, but uh, at the same time, it's one of the things I'm very passionate about. In terms of rainbow trout, there's really, uh, in the lower 48, Mm -hmm. uh, you're looking at all current-day rainbow trout that are stocked. For the most part, you can trace that back to a common ancestor of the McLeod River red band trout uh, in northern California. Uh, And I've actually been there to actually catch those uh, in in their actual native range. It's an incredibly beautiful fish, and it looks nothing like what you and I picture a rainbow trout. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some similarities, but not not that much in the small creeks. It actually... A little bit more like kind of a cross between a cutthroat and a golden trout, and that, that it looks more like that in many of the drainages that I fished them in. Wow! Um, but the thing that's interesting with that fish is that those are the ones that were transported and propagated and bred and raised. And so, as you have, you know, the current day rainbow trout, if you wanted to look at it this way, it's great, 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 or a whole lot more grapes in there. Grandfather and grandmother were all the Cloud River red bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are actual true, you know, like the Alaskan rainbows, like yeah. the leopard rainbow. That, that, that itself, that's a native rainbow. That's something that, you know, they've got steelhead up there in Alaska. Uh, I actually have a brother that lives in Alaska, so part of him and his family, he lives, he lives up there. And so that whole ecosystem is completely different. You're looking at, you've got a natrum of fish, you've got, you know, fish that remain in stream, you've got some stuff that gets landlocked over years. It's just strange to see all the, all the different dynamics of all that, but Nonetheless, the, the native rainbows are only going to be on the pretty much the western seaboard. You'll see like yep. anywhere steelhead are, you know, which is California, Oregon, Washington, uh, British Columbia, Idaho, stuff yeah. like that. Exactly, all the way into Alaska. That that's where steelhead run. That's the extent of the rainbow trout. Yep. Uh, all the eastern states, all the stuff like you know Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Stop. you know Colorado, New Mexico, Utah. There is nothing, no no native rainbows in there at all. Uh, and there's actually, uh, a lot of people don't realize this, there's not a single native brown trout to the U.S. Yeah, they're, they're European, right? Europe. They're from Europe, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. There were two strains. There was the, the Von Bar strain and the Loch Levin strain. One was from uh, Germany, the other one was from uh, Scotland. So you're looking at those two strains were brought in, uh, stocked in different places. One was more of a river strain, and one was more of a lake red strain. And uh, now the current day brown trout that we have is, of course, you know, the, the ancestor of all of that. But... Uh, and brook trout, which obviously persists, they're probably the largest threat uh, to high elevation cutthroat trout. They, I, I, I jokingly call them the cockroach of the West. They are beautiful <laughs> in their native range, and they deserve protection. Everything that we do for cutthroat and just to protect them and to, and to celebrate that species, I think the brook trout deserves every bit of that within their native range. They're, it's a fish worth protecting. It's, it's, I mean, it's borderline sacred in its native range and especially if you have in the northeast and I've caught them uh, caught them up there as well and they're beautiful it's an incredible fish but in the west they just flat out don't belong there they're introduced look and I so, got a uh, bunch of me and my redneck friends if there's a bag limit dude we'll show up and uh, you know we'll uh-huh. we'll put no, some on the grill dude <laughs> so, oh man no I mean that, that's camp food around our place exactly the, the thing that's really cool like that's actually one of the conservation efforts is uh, the San Luis Valley chapter of Trout Unlimited, uh, which is right there in southern, kind of southern central Colorado. They meet in Alamosa. Um, they actually have a creek that they've invested in. A good friend of mine, Kevin Terry, has done a lot of, uh, you know, livestock exposures to keep the elk and the livestock out from overgrazing and trampling down the stream banks to kind of have the habitat restoration on that creek. 
And uh, they're finding now that uh, the cutthroat are actually seem to re- they're rebounding pretty well. Uh, I heard at one of the check stations on the upper river right now, it's looking at uh, about one in three fish or cutthroats when that was not anywhere close to that number a few years ago. So it's awesome. But they're actually doing a conservation effort this summer where their members are competing for a really nice rod and reel combo. Uh, I know it's nice because we, we donated it, so I got to pick it out I myself. Hear you. But the, the the thing that was cool is they're going to be uh, they're going to be competing for that, and uh, they're keeping limits of brook trout. So that's what they're doing to help the cutthroat out. Is they're just simply pulling trout from the river and going to take them home and have a nice dinner. Hey, ain't nothing wrong with that, man. I love to eat trout. Trout's incredible. Uh, the last trout I caught was in New York last year. Some small brown trout, and it was like in a gully by some people's house. The uh, I went turkey hunting with friends of mine, and my friend doesn't fish. But one of his friends fished. and like, dude, you live by the Finger Lakes in Lake Ontario and all these streams. You don't fish. What's wrong with you, you know? And so uh, you can't turkey hunt in the evenings there. So I spent my evenings fishing, and I'm catching these, like, little one-pound brown trout in, like, a little ditch by some guy's house. And, you know, they knew they were stocked, but I was talking to some locals there that really had no idea that there are no brown trout native to the U.S. and kind of thought these fish are all native to New York because they've been there as long as they have, you know. So I think it's interesting to let people know that we've done things to enhance fisheries and make things great. I mean, like the Little Red River in Arkansas, what an incredible, fun fishery to go to. But it's also important to look at what the good Lord put in America, you know, and take those native fish that we have and prioritize them in terms of conservation. And that's, that's absolutely correct. And that's one of the things that I know you mentioned that we got connected by uh, Therese Thompson, who's a dear friend of mine with Western Native Trout Initiative. Mm-hmm. That's something that I really just have to sing the phrases of that organization. You know, Trout Unlimited, they have a very broad focus on the fact that it is cold, clean, fishable water. And while there's a very, very large emphasis on native fish, you know, there's also the, the emphasis on the recreational sure. tailwater fisheries and yeah. things like that as well. Because, I mean, it, it's kind of a something for everybody, but that's the part where Western Native Trout Initiative just focus, that their sole focus is on what actually is, you know, intrinsic to the U.S. and especially the, way, the Western states as it concerns them. And that's the part where they pour 100% of their efforts into nothing but native species. And that's the part that I just absolutely adore them for. They do such a great job of it. Yeah, I think it's incredible. Uh, in our, we have our ministry, and uh, one of the things we do, we call Higher Calling Wild Wishes Expeditions, and we've taken our second trip out to Central Texas to take basically our native trout, the Guadalupe bass, <laughs> you know, a native yeah. a native bass out there. And we took the kids out, and we were having them use their social media to talk about native fish in Texas and, you know, problems with hybridization with smallmouth and stream problems and things like that. So, you know, if you look into all these states, most of these states have some kind of a, a native fish that – you know, that maybe something else is is disagreeing with that we've introduced, and it's a good time to reflect on that and prioritize the things that are here first and also realize, hey, there's nothing wrong with having these wonderful, incredible trout fisheries all around America and enjoying that because, you know, we, we, we spoke the other day and, like, I dig a bunch of people going out fishing. I may not necessarily like them on my hole all the time, but uh, I like seeing people out there because the more the more people, the b- b- better voice we're going to have at Congress when there's a Clean Water Act or when there's grants going to be out for clean streaming and things like that. The more people behind it, the bigger the voice is going to be, and in the end of the day, the better the fishery is going to be. 100%. And, I mean, and that's something I know that uh, you and I have chatted before, that conservation, I mean, it, it's sad that it's been dovetailed into becoming a, solely a political issue. Sure, man. And, and it's not that at all. It, it is, it's all about heart. And I mean, and no I mean we say this a lot where, where, 
lovers will always work harder than workers. So, I mean, if you cherish a fish, if you mm-hmm. cherish an environment, if you cherish habitat, and you fight for that, you'll see that you're going to accomplish a lot more in education and in spreading the good news of that environment, that fish, whatever it is you want to pursue, that passion. You know, that's the part where you're going to make a bigger difference than anybody pushing a pencil. And that's the thing that is just so, so important to know that that voice is important and everybody has one, especially this day and age. I mean, social media, for better or for worse, I mean, you're seeing native trout become a little bit more popular uh, in the social media platforms just simply because now everybody can kind of show off what they caught. And people are like, whoa, I didn't even know that was a thing. So it's really cool to see more of an emphasis put there. So it, it, it does have its merit. Uh, but do do know that even as it pertains to our local species here in Texas, that you know it, it, we can fight for the water still. That's something that we can still fight for water. Texas is growing so fast, mm-hmm. the land's pretty hard to come by. But water, there's so much of that public for you and me that deserves protection and deserves conservation. Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do with our expeditions and things like that. And those you guys are fighting for, and uh, it's you know it's just an it's an inspiring thing, you know. And I I I'm, you know most people in the that I deal with in like the hunting realm, especially in most, in a lot of anglers are more maybe generally conservative minded politically or whatever. And, and I certainly am in most issues, but I get sick of people. I've had people think, well, you're an animal rights activist now because you're talking about clean water. No, I just don't want to end up in a cancer hospital. Uh, you know, I like to have clean air. I want, you know, you know, Chris, where I learned about the idea of clean water was a gully by my house, a little stream. My dad said, you can fish down there. We, we're not going to eat anything that's in there because of this horrible pollution that was going down there. And there was like a factory that was putting these dyes in the water, and it was really in carcinogens and stuff, you know? And I learned my first lesson of pollution in fishing, and I knew if we want to eat the fish and harvest the fish and enjoy a great fishery, we need to have clean water. I didn't learn that from a classroom or a bureaucrat. I learned that from my dad in a fishing hole by the house. Absolutely. Same, same here, man. I mean, that the creek that I grew up fishing, uh, my grandparents had a place down in Ciblo, and uh, they, they had fish killed through the San Antonio dumping a bunch of stuff in the water one time. And it, yep. was, just, it was a horrible deal. Um, and it, it's just one of those deals that it, they, they ran into these conservation issues that were very real, very present. And uh, that, that's something that, uh, it, you know, you see that as a kid and it sticks with you. And I forget, I forget which city it was that actually had the spill. I don't remember if it was, I don't remember which one on the Ciblo, but I, I do know this. And that was my grandpa still telling me about that and going, you know, we're just now seeing this fish start to come back. You know, all that evidence was anecdotal. I don't think anybody ever ran an electroshock boat or a kit through there. <laughs> sure. I mean, it was one of those things that yeah. he, he noticed it for fishing. And that's yeah. the part where it, it, there, there is a little bit of, I mean, well, I'm, I'm not going to say a little bit, there's a ton of value in anecdotal evidence from citizen science and people being out there going, hey, there's a problem. And sometimes that's the first warning sign we have when biologists aren't out in the field, you know, every moment of the day. Sometimes our anglers realize that, hey, there's a problem here. And, and that's something that that's where the red flag goes up and gets the attention of the departments that need to go out and give it the look that it deserves. And I believe it's going to be even more important in this post-COVID-19 thing because I really don't think our economic chickens have completely come home to roost yet. And there's already been surveys canceled and lots of things in the scientific realm. And if, you know, hopefully the economy bounces back, but if we have another wave of this and we have more closures, there is going to be people let go in fish and game departments around the nation. And they're going to be maybe an even more important role for that citizen science to concern guy to say, hey, we can take up some slack by reporting this and helping this and really being more engaged than ever. 
and that's the truth. And I mean, the, and the other part about that is, is, I mean, there's a lot of people that listen to this that are landowners. You know, it starts with your own property. You yeah. know, doing doing what you can with you know the ranch you've got, the little homestead you got. I, I don't care if it's you know doing what you can on your front yard and your backyard. You know, being conscious about you know what you put on the grass. You know what you you know Not what kind of stuff you're spraying. How close how close are you to the creek? Where does it drain? You know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, and that's one of the, the, the deals that we run into with urban fisheries, that it just, it does get very, very complicated and very convoluted in a hurry. Um, but with that, you know, we, we can make a difference, you know, one place at a time, one person at a time, and uh, it is important. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Now, let's say someone wants to uh, take up this kind of fishing. You know, there's two different ways to do this. You can go fish with ultralight spin cast, which I love, or get involved in fly fishing. Uh People can kind of figure out the spin cast part, but the fly fishing part, if someone wants to start fly fishing and maybe go after the, the Guadalupe rainbow trout, or maybe they're listening in one of these other states like Nevada or Utah or wherever and going after their native trout, what's the best thing to do? They need to go get some lessons. Would that really help them? Lessons are by far one of the things that if you learn from a, a really good casting instructor, that's the part that that's probably the best money invested in the sport. Because if you learn the the true five essentials of fly casting, you go through that, you learn from a instructor that's well-versed in it, uh, wherever they are, whether it be here or anywhere else, you know, wherever you're listening, find a good certified instructor or a good casting instructor. And, uh, man, I'll tell you what, it, it'll shape years off your learning curve. Uh, and then getting a guided trip, you know, kind of doing that as a one-two punch. That's a really great way to kind of get the casting under your belt yep. and immediately turn around and learn how to make that work on the water. And one of the things that we really try to do within our store is, we try to guide all public water if at all possible within the state of Texas. And that's the other part that's so special is that you can go access those same access points on foot by yourself after the guided trip and you'll recreate that experience. So, I mean, we're, we, we, we teach so that we can give it away. We really honestly want you to go back out and enjoy the resource even after you finish that trip. It's not something of like, hey, you have to be with us to do this. We want you to enjoy it because it's there for you to enjoy. Well, in my opinion, the greatest man that ever walked the earth said, given it will be given unto you. So looking what you guys are, and you guys are giving back, I'm sure you'll thrive in your business with that, and, and you'll have people loyal to you and, and appreciate that, because there's been there's too much ego sometimes in the fishing and hunting worlds. I like it when people are like, hey, let's help each other out, let's help the fishery out, let's help the resource out, and have an incredible time. But I can't talk fishing and fly fishing, but I'll ask you a couple of just personal questions here, if you don't mind. Uh, what has been do you do you also saltwater fly fish by the way yeah i've done my, my, my dad's actually a missionary so i get to travel all over the world and bring some bonefish permit texas coast all okay so, so you got you so you got me i'm jealous right now so like i'm not a big fly fisherman i probably do everything wrong but i've caught everything from speckled trout to rainbow trout and brownies and all this stuff over the years just by going out and doing it you know right but uh i put a thing on facebook the other day i said if you could catch one saltwater fish in the world you haven't what would it be and i put a bonefish i mean i would love to catch a bonefish on or a permit either one of those two so you've caught those uh what about in freshwater what's been like your favorite catch has there been one that was really special to you Ooh, freshwater favorite catch um you know i, I mean i know this sounds redundant but there for me it kind of depends on where i'm going and what i'm doing because for me the big fish doesn't necessarily do it sure um there there have been some fish that like really stick out in my mind you know of course in texas we have a ton of native fish that i enjoy chasing like the rio grande cichlid and the guadalupe bass and so there i have favorite individuals from those species but as far as the one that like 
it'll melt my heart and it gets my blood boiling. I mean, I can I can get some serious bus fever if I'm watching a big cutthroat rise. Yeah, and that's it, man. I mean, like that's for cool. me, it, it's a it, it's a small fish. It's not a really big fish. I mean, sure. it can it can get big, and in lakes it can get over two feet. But you know, it's one of those things that in the creeks, a twelve inch fish is massive in some of the small water that I fish, and that's the kind of stuff that I I just love that man. It, that's still my favorite fish to go chase for kind of like the I guess the nostalgic, I'm going to get caught daydreaming about it. And I know it's because that absence makes the heart grow fonder thing. Because, you know, I don't take for granted what I've got in my own backyard by any means. Because, I mean, my entire livelihood revolves around it and a, a great many fishing hours. But the fact of the matter that I only get to get up there a couple of times a year to go chase Rio Grande cuts. And everybody asks, like, well, are you going to go do all the other cutthroats? I'm like, yeah, Lord willing, I'd love to. But I have to get through New Mexico and Colorado first. I'm just like... That, that fish just, I think it's so cool how if you look at the old Republic of Texas, how it went all the way through modern day Texas and then went up into Mexico, followed the Rio Grande all the way into Colorado. You know, it, it, I mean, they're still native to the, uh, the old Republic of Texas. So it's, it's kind of cool to tile that together, see the ecosystems change and yet link together all at the same time. And, and it feels like you're, it's kind of a home away from home for me uh, when I go up there. So there's a part of that that. It does make me real nostalgic of being in the Astons and the spruce and the firs and then, you know, being up there and seeing this blaze orange fish come up and sip a dry fly. And I, I do, I just get a kick out of watching them. I don't even have to catch them. But uh, if I were to say the one that stuck out the most, we made a, uh, a friend of mine, Nathan Brown, and I, myself, we made a film, mm -hmm. uh, I think it released in 2016 called Unspoken. And it's a 15 minute short film about us chasing Rio Grande Cut. Uh, in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. It's mm -hmm. a conservation-based film that we raise money uh, for the species with. But there's a about halfway in that thing, there's a fish that just comes up and rises over and over and over and over on all these midges and, you know, little cats and stuff like that. And he's coming up and just going to town. But that fish, we caught that fish on film. And I went up to that same creek two years later, and I wound up catching that fish in the same Dude. spot two years later. That's it was awesome. kind of weird because it kind of felt like you were seeing an old friend again. Because I mean, I've, cool, I've watched man. that. We, we did all those viewings of that film, and uh, you know, you're watching that scene over and over and over, and then to actually hold him again two years later, see that he'd gotten bigger, that he was healthy, and you're able to release him. Uh, I mean, he's a bit of a movie star, and that was the thing. It was kind of cool to see an old friend again. So that's one that really oh. sticks out in my mind. It's kind of a special fish. What a beautiful story, and I love that kind of thing. I'm like, uh, I've kind of the last couple of years kind of gotten the thing for the Guadalupe bass and the Rio Grande cichlids out there in the hill country, you know. Um, just really, it's really cool to know. And it's like a long shot for me. It's like where we go fishing the Nueces is about seven hours. I live as far east as you can go in Texas and Orange and Louisiana border. So, um, you know, it's a long shot. I love that out there. Of course, I want to catch a muskie. I like the other side of the equation too, you know. I want to catch a big old giant muskie, you know. But I uh, love, you know, when you, talk, when you talk about fishing, you know, I've, I've been blessed, man. I've caught everything from, you know, huge sharks to, you know, Wells catfish in Spain and peacock bass and, all that cool stuff, but you know, I would just as soon be out in the stream somewhere catching a big old cichlid, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, well, and you know, you don't have to drive that far next time. Come stop at Brushy Creek across the street here in Round Rock, man. The uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife just did a study. Uh, I think the study's not more than two years old. I think it is on the recent one. They've been doing a ton of fishery surveys and creel surveys and usage surveys on the, on the fishery here. Uh, I've been talking with them for years and said, "Hey, y'all need to come put loose on the ground and check this out." And uh, they did a genetic study, and our Guadalupe bass that are in Brushy Creek are actually genetically pure. They're one of the one of the few populations in the state that are actually A grade genetically pure fish. Well, I'm on it. We'll have to bring some of our kiddos up there and uh, 
and rig them up. Man, I tell you what, this has been a fascinating conversation. I would love to have you back on and talk maybe some more in-depth trout stuff and maybe some fishing-specific stuff in the future. Certainly, anytime. And now, if people want to reach you for a guide trip or information or that kind of stuff, where do they go? Absolutely. Uh, the, the name of the store is Living Water Fly Fishing. We're in Round Rock, Texas. Uh, you can get on our website, which is livingwatersflyfishing.com. Uh, we're also very active on social media with uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram as well. Uh, and if you want to call the shop directly to actually book, if you just call us 512-828-FISH or 3474 if you don't have letters on your phone. So 512-828-3474 if you're trying to get all of it. All right, Chris, we appreciate it. Thanks for calling in to Higher Calling. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hey, folks, let me take a minute to tell you about my good friends at the Houston Safari Club Foundation. This is an organization that supports hunting and conservation. They've taken hundreds of kids hunting and fishing, given out over $2 million in scholarships, and they provided over $4 million in grants to protect wildlife and habitat at home and abroad. They host great monthly events and an annual convention where you can meet other hunters and learn about all types of hunting. Don't let the name mislead you. They're not just about safaris, but definitely about all kinds of hunting. Education, conservation, protecting the future of hunting. That's the Houston Safari Club Foundation. Join today. Call 713-623-8844 or go to wehuntwegive.org to learn more. Higher Calling is brought to you by Texas Fishing Game Magazine, our official sponsor. You can check the online edition out at fishgame.com and also subscribe to their e-newsletter. And if you'd like to meet a personally subscribe you to that newsletter because I actually can do that. You can email me at chester at chestermore.com. Fishgame.com is not only wildlife and fisheries in Texas, but we cover things going on nationwide. And you definitely subscribe to the newsletter. Three updates a week, killer, killer stuff put together by yours truly. Once again, Higher Calling is sponsored by Texas Fishing Game Magazine at fishgame.com. You've been listening to The Higher Calling, hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Contact him at chester at chestermore.com. Follow him at thechestermore on Instagram and his blog at highercalling.net.